Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17. John says, when he, meaning Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, as we pick up where we left off last week, it will help us to do a quick recap. John has seen Jesus open the first four of the seven seals on the scroll. And when they were opened, we saw the Antichrist come out to conquer without warfare. Then we saw peace taken from the earth, and that brought wars and killings. And then we saw a resulting famine in which a day's pay was used just to eat. Then we saw that a quarter of the earth was killed by sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Now, before we move on to the fifth seal, I want to remind you that these are all progressing and happening at the same time. Remember, Jesus was asked, and we looked at this last week, when in Matthew 24, he was asked, what are going to be the signs of your coming in the end of the age? And he told them about the tribulation period. He told them about these seals that were being opened. He said, look, there are going to be people that come out and claim to be the Christ. Don't follow them. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars and famines. And then he goes on and says, then when you see the abomination of desolation, that's when you get out. That, we haven't gotten to that part of the study yet. We'll get there soon. But as you hopefully understand, when Jesus talked about these things, which are going to be the signs right before his return, he was describing the beginning of the tribulation period, the opening of these seals. But these things, if we try to see them happening, this is going to happen, then that's going to happen, then it's not quite like that. There's an order, yet they're all happening together. You see, there's going to be an antichrist who comes into power at the beginning of the time of world chaos, possibly due to the rapture of the church. When the church is taken away, there's going to be a chaos that goes on all over the globe because of it. I mean, just think of, doesn't the government want your stuff now? Wouldn't they love to have your bank accounts and all your stuff and just kind of pull it all and they get to dole it out? Well, guess what? When Jesus takes his bride, all your bank accounts, all of your property, everything's going to be open. We've seen looting already on the earth, haven't we? There's going to be unbelievable looting when the church is raptured. The government, and I believe the Bible shows us it's going to be a one world government, is going to try to come in to get control during this chaos. And there's going to be this world leader that is going to come on the scene. And he's not even going to have to use warfare. His bow has no arrows in it. And he comes riding on a white horse. And there's going to be, because of this, resulting wars and fighting. Because remember the red horse? They were able to take peace from the earth. And because of this fighting, there's going to be famines. 
And during this time of the fighting and the famines and all this stuff, a quarter of the earth's population is going to be killed. And as you're going to see tonight, even though all that chaos has gone on, all these things are happening during the first four seals and even the fifth seal. It isn't until the sixth seal that the earth finally wakes up to realize God's doing something. They're just thinking that's just life on this earth. Actually, if you do a study of all these different world religions and what their views are of the end times, do you know that most all of them have a teaching that says that at the end, there's going to be a group of people that disappear? They do. Each of the religions have an explanation for why uh, some, some uh, the, like the, the, the New World Order kind of folks and, and the New Agers, the, 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 there's going to be a group of people they teach that actually are genetically weak. And they're going to disappear. Others teach that there's going to be some alien invasion that takes a bunch of people. There's going to be lots of reasons for why the world says that we were, where we're gone. But it isn't, as you're going to see tonight, until the sixth seal that they finally start realizing God's doing something. And so when Jesus now opens the fifth seal, John sees the souls of the believers that are killed during this time. These are those who were killed during the tribulation. He sees the souls of the, those under the altar. Now, again, as I said last week, this is not the church. Remember, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, God spoke to the churches and he said, I am going to keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world. On the whole earth. Now, people have said, well, that doesn't mean that the church won't go through it. They'll just be protected in the midst of it because kind of like Noah, he didn't, wasn't taken off the earth during the judgment of God. He and his family were protected in the midst of it. And there are those that teach that the church will be here during the tribulation, but will be spared because he's going to keep us from the hour of trial. Well, are these believers being spared? No, they're being killed. Well, and go with me to Revelation chapter 7. Let me remind you, uh, when we looked earlier at the 144,000 and them going out as witnesses during the beginning of the tribulation period all over the globe, and the many nations of individuals that, of different nations that come to faith. Listen to what it says in, in verse 13 of Revelation 7. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. By the way, you're going to see that coming up in the second half of the tribulation. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Did you see it? These ones that have come out, these believers that come to faith during the tribulation period, who have been given white robes and righteousness because of their faith, when they die, they will no longer have to deal with hunger and thirst, and the sun scorching them. All things that are going to be happening during this tribulation period. So, our believers... Kept from the hour of trial in the sense that they'll be spared. They'll be in it, but they won't be touched. Not what the scripture teaches. You're going to see later on that the Antichrist, the beast, is going to make war against the saints. And he's going to overcome them. So if Jesus was saying, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial, but saying that means you'll be in it, but you'll be protected... It can't be the correct interpretation because every believer that we see in the, the tribulation period that comes to faith, 
is killed. If they don't take the mark of the beast, they're not allowed to eat. They're not allowed to buy and sell. They won't be spared. So what does it mean when Jesus says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial? He's talking to the church. And we won't be here when this time comes. And I got further evidence from our context here that this isn't the church. Does anybody know what it is? By the way, you all better be ready to talk tonight because I'm going to be giving you lots of questions and lots of quizzes. I'm going to give you a pop quiz tonight. Actually, two or three. So I'm just giving you a little heads up. It's an open book test. So don't worry about that. But can anybody show me from the context here evidence that this is not the church? I'm sorry? I couldn't hear you. From the tribes. From the tribes? Here in, 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 uh, in, I'm looking at chapter six in the fifth seal. What is their attitude toward the people who are killing them? Vengeance. Vengeance. Lord, how long do you pay them back? Now, we've got to do a little study here to realize that's not the attitude that we're supposed to have in the church, is it? Go with me real quickly to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 37. And Luke 23, starting in verse 32, it says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, meaning Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Were the people asking for forgiveness? But what was Jesus' prayer? Did he say, God, take names? God, I hope you're watching right now. I hope you're paying attention to all these people that are doing this. And I hope you get them. No, his prayer was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Go with me real quick to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, look at verses 54 through 60. Stephen has been preaching. He just said in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. By the way, there are some people that teach that you can't resist the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that you can. But look at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, how long do you avenge my blood? No, he didn't, did he? He cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Folks, I want to take a second, and actually more than a second. I'm going to take a little bit tonight. I want to go away from Revelation for a second and talk to us today as the church. Because 
the attitude of the believers who are killed during the tribulation is, Lord, when are you going to get them back? And they're not told that they had a wrong attitude. What are they told? Just wait, there's some more. And once everybody else is going to be killed like you are, are killed, then it'll be taken care of. They're not told that their attitude is wrong. Yet the scripture teaches very clearly that for those of us who are in the church age, we are to have an attitude that says, not Lord, get them, but Lord, forgive them. Jesus is not slow in keeping his promise of return. Why? He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, when Jesus came to the earth the first time, he didn't come to judge the world. What did he say that he came to do? Does anybody know? He came to save them. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to die for their sins. Well, let me actually let you hear from Jesus himself. Go to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12. Look at verses 44 through 50. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, listen, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Look at what Jesus says here. He says, I have come into the world as a light. I have not come to judge. Oh, there is a time of judgment coming. And the measure that's going to be used in judgment is the words that I've spoken to them. If they receive it and they believe, they've not just received me, they've received the one who sent me. If they reject my words, they haven't rejected me, but they've rejected the one who sent me. And on the day of judgment, they will be reminded that they were shared this truth and they rejected it. But my purpose on this earth, Jesus said, is not to condemn nor to judge, but to just simply live and shine the light of who God is and his love. Well, doesn't it say in John 3, 16, for God so what the world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Go real quickly. You'll see that Jesus says the same thing here in John chapter 3. And, but we want to keep reading. John chapter 3, look at verse 16 and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, do you see it? But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Again, we see Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus here and he says, look, I've not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Now, listen closely to what I want you to hear. Yes, there is a time of judgment coming. 
Yes, there is a day when it's right for the believers to say, Lord, when are you going to get the world for it, for what they've done? But that's not this time. Because when Jesus came, he said, I am the light of the world. John chapter 8, verse 12. And what did he say to us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 15? You are the light of the world. Let me clarify it for you in another way. When Jesus walked on the earth, he wasn't just a man. He was also God, correct? He was God in the flesh. Who felt comfortable in Jesus' presence? The sinners. Now, he never approved of their lifestyle. You would see him in an encounter with, with Zacchaeus, where Zacchaeus comes out of that lunch wanting to pay everybody back four times as much as he stole. You see when he meets with this woman who is caught in the act of adultery, and he says, those of you without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. By the way, was there anybody there that could throw a stone? Yeah, there was somebody there, wasn't there? We've always thought about that. And, oh, there was nobody there. Yes, there was. There was somebody there without sin. And he didn't throw it. Why? Because it wasn't the time to judge. It was the time to offer truth and light and salvation and grace. Whether they receive it or not, it's between them and God. Jesus said, I've just come to be a light to the world. I didn't come to judge. Listen to me, Christians. Who felt uncomfortable in the presence of God? The religious folk. Let me ask you an honest question. You all go to different churches, so we're not casting any shame on any one church. But in our churches today, who feels uncomfortable and who feels comfortable? The sinners feel uncomfortable in our midst. The righteous religious folk feel comfortable in our churches. I don't know if you caught it yet or not. That means that what we are portraying in our churches today is not who God is. Because when God was on this earth... Even though he never approved of their sin, he told that woman who he didn't cast a stone at her, he said, go and sin no more. Even though he never approved of their lifestyle, he loved them in such a way that they felt not condemned, not judged, but accepted. And he shined the light and he offered salvation and he didn't judge them because he didn't come to judge. Oh, there's a day coming. I say to you, the souls under the altar here at this point of the tribulation who are saying, how long till you avenge our blood? They have a proper attitude because they're in that time period setting up for the judgment of God. But during this church age, until he has taken us away, we are not to be condemning of those who are outside of Christ, but just simply shining the light of who he is, offering salvation. If they accept it, wonderful. If they reject it, don't condemn them. The fact that they rejected the truth will one day be used against them if they never come around. How many of you responded on the first time you heard about Jesus? Probably not very many, did we? But God in his grace pursued us and continued to put people in our lives and shine the light in front of us. And so I challenge you, I challenge you to not say that sin is okay, but to live in such a way that those who don't know him will feel comfortable because you're not judging them. You're just showing them the truth. Now let me add one more thing to this and we'll get back to Revelation. One thing that will help you in this is the difference between being a witness and an evangelist. We've all been called to be witnesses. But not everybody's supposed to be an evangelist. But we've unfortunately put the two together. 
Whenever you hear the word witness, you hear evangelism, don't you? There are only some that are evangelists. We're all called to be a witness. A witness is just simply someone that says, I testify to what I have seen and what I've heard. I know Jesus. He's real. I can tell you he's real, and I live like he's real. By the way, two nights ago, my wife and I and a couple of friends of ours from another church in the past and another couple from Australia got together at Jason's Deli, and we were a witness. Oh, we didn't go talk to anybody, but we sat there for two and a half hours and just loved on each other and shared the Lord with each other. Because this couple from Australia, this other couple that my wife and I know from here, uh, we met with them because this couple, my friend Mike and I, had met on a basketball mission trip 12 years ago. And they happened to be back in our area. And we hadn't seen each other in 12 years. And it was just an awesome, awesome night where we got to spend time sharing what God's done in our life in 12 years and what God's been doing in their life. And i got to be honest with you, we were loud. <laughs> but what was cool was, how many people kept coming up to us to thank us for letting them hear our conversation? Oh, there have been times in restaurants where people came up and told me they didn't want to hear my conversation. I had one lady at a Sonny's one time. I was meeting with this pastor, and we were just talking about the Lord and his, what he's doing. And this lady came up afterwards. She said, the whole restaurant didn't have to hear your conversation. And I thought to myself... They might have, but I don't, you know, but I always said, I'm really sorry. I was loud. I wasn't intending to be loud. I can't help it. I just excited about what God's doing and you know, that kind of a deal. But folks, listen closely. There's a difference between being a witness and being an evangelist. Let me take one more second to help you out in this. We have been taught over the years that we're supposed to go win the lost, that we're supposed to go evangelize and that we're supposed to go Draw the net. Has anybody ever heard the term draw the net? Raise your hands here. Has anybody heard the term draw the net? Yeah, you've just dated yourselves and shown you're Baptist. But, uh, uh, but we were taught to draw the net. In other words, when you share the gospel with somebody, you've got to get them to make a decision. Bring them. Would you like to pray that prayer right now? Would you like to be saved right now? I'm going to show you folks from Scripture that was never, ever God's intention and actually, you can't show me drawing the net anywhere in the Bible. But actually, if we live the light and share the light as he gives us and shares us to, what does the Bible say? Be ready to give answer for the reason for the hope that lies within you. If we're doing it the way we're supposed to have been doing it, and we believe that God's able to open the people's eyes and bring them to the point of salvation. People are going to come to us and say, would you talk to me some more about this Jesus? Actually, you see it in Acts chapter 2. Peter's preaching at Pentecost. And the scripture says the people were cut to their heart. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? It was after they were asked that Peter said, repent and believe and be baptized. In Acts chapter 8, Stephen, sorry, Philip is, is led by the Spirit to go over to this chariot. And he just asks him, he says, are you, are you able to understand what you're reading there? And the guy says, well, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? So he goes up and he starts explaining. So it helps you to, do, to know the scriptures and know how to share the gospel and know the Roman road, if you will, or the four spiritual laws. It's valuable for you to know how to lead someone to Christ. But 
We're not to go try to lead someone to Christ. We're to live the light, shine the light, let the people around us who don't know him feel comfortable in our presence. And when the Spirit of God brings them to that point, we can then show them. The Ethiopian eunuch is the one who initiated the salvation process. He said, here's water. What keeps me from being baptized? The jailer in Acts chapter 16 says, brothers, what must we do to be saved? Lydia in Acts chapter 16 says, the Lord opened her heart to believe the message that Paul was preaching. And she said, if you consider me a believer, would you let the church start in my house? Folks, I challenge you to show me anywhere where that person said, would you like to do that right now? We have, without realizing it, felt like God can't seal the deal unless we close the sale. Oh, that's come from the business world where they've been taught to pressure people to make a decision. How many of you love telemarketers calling your house? When the church starts looking more like telemarketers, something's wrong. And you want to know part of the reason why the church, I mean, the world doesn't feel comfortable in our presence? Because they feel like we're going to come up to and try to get them saved. Because that's what we've been doing. When the Bible says that's God's work, what are we to do? We are to shine the light, share the truth by living it. And as the spirit does his work, they'll come ask. So go spend some time with people that don't know Jesus and love on them. Invite them to play golf with you and don't do it just for the purpose of getting them saved. Get involved in the life of people. In Luke chapter 5, we see Jesus go up to Matthew, the tax collector, and he says, come follow me. And Matthew just starts following him. And then what does, Matthew, what does Matthew do? He invites all his tax collector's friends to a party at his house. And Jesus goes and hangs out with them. So, you want further evidence that the church isn't here? We're supposed to be saying, Lord, forgive them. They don't know. Lord, give them another chance. Lord, give them your grace that you gave me. Lord, I thank you that you didn't rapture the church before I got saved. I thank you that I'm a part of it. Lord, I pray for them as well. It's so easy for us to wake up every morning and say, oh, we're still here. Well, the reason we're still here is because we're still in the church age where God's offering his grace. Once we're gone, the time of judgment will begin on the world. And that's why it's okay for these souls under the altar to say, how long until you get them back? And they're not told that's the wrong attitude. They said, hey, relax, we're right on schedule. Just wait till the rest of your brothers are killed like you will be. Let's go to the sixth seal. Oh, and by the way, as you're going back to Revelation chapter six, let me also just remind you, don't let the word saints in the book of Revelation mess you up. Too many people over the years that said the church is in the book of Revelation. It says there that the, the Antichrist makes war against the saints and he overcomes them. That shows that's the church. No, no, no. There were Old Testament saints, weren't there? Right? There were Old Testament saints. Were they the church? No. There's church saints. And just like there were Old Testament saints, there are tribulation saints. So these saints that we see going to be overcome by the Antichrist are these tribulation believers, those who have come out of the great tribulation, those who have been scorched and hungered and thirsted, and they've really suffered during this time, but they're given righteousness because of their faith. In John chapter, sorry, Revelation chapter 6 now, in verse 12, when he, Jesus, opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, when Jesus opens the sixth seal, we begin to see a major shift in the events during the time period known as the seven-year tribulation. When this seal is opened, there are such global and astronomical events that people on the earth finally begin to realize that God's active in what's going on on the earth and not just mankind. By the way, has God been active in the first of the five seals? How do we know? I'm sorry? He's the one's opening them. And then the first living creature says, come. And the white horse comes out. Second living creature says, come. And the red horse comes out and so on. God's the one who's doing it. By the way, we may not realize it, but God's been orchestrating all things for all time. Oh, yeah, Satan's doing a lot of stuff, but he's on a leash and he only is allowed to do what the father allows him. Ultimately, your father in heaven is in control of all things. But what I want you to see is that Jesus mentions a similar event in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31. And this is where it's going to get tricky for you. So I want you to pay close attention. And if you're taking notes, it will really help you to write a few things down. Because as similar as these two events are, I'm going to show you that they're not the same. And we're going to look at some other prophecies from the Old Testament that will help us out in this. So go back with me now to Matthew 24 and look at verses 29 through 31. Matthew 24, starting in verse 29. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Now, so again, that's not the rapture. That's at the second coming of Jesus when he actually is going to be gathering all the believers who make it through the tribulation period back to Jerusalem where he's going to judge the sheep and the goats and separate the sheep and the goats. The believers are the ones who are going to live in the millennial kingdom. The goats are going to be the ones who go off to hell. Now, look closely. This sure sounds a lot like what we just read about in the sixth seal, doesn't it? It almost seems word for word. But I want you to show you the importance of really studying the scriptures to understand that there's a difference. All right, so let's do a careful study of these two to see what the difference is. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, there's an earthquake. And the Bible says every island and mountain were moved. Now, as some of you may know, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Hawaii this summer for our 25th wedding anniversary. And because I've been studying prophecy for 20 plus years and I know the book of Revelation pretty well, I remember as we were going and seeing the Hawaiian Islands, I kept telling my wife, let's see this now while it's still here. Because the Bible says that there's going to come a point, and as you see, it's at the midpoint of the tribulation. Hopefully, hopefully you see that. that. There's going to be such an earthquake across the whole globe that every island and mountain is going to be moved. The sun becomes what in Revelation 6? Black as sackcloth. The moon becomes what? Red like blood. That's important. These are very important clues that will help us really understand what's going on and what's when. The stars fall. 
The sky vanishes in Revelation 6, but we got to keep in mind that the sun and moon are still there because you can see the moon if it's red. All right. And on top of that, as I already tipped you off a little bit to what's coming up in this in the seventh seal that turns into seven trumpets and then the seventh trumpet turns into seven bowls during the time to come in the second half of the tribulation. The sun is going to get so hot on the earth, it's going to scorch people. It's just going to burn them. So the sun is not totally removed at this time, but God's doing something in the skies that's getting the attention of the world that this isn't just a natural event, that God's actually doing something. All right. In Matthew 24, verse 29, the sun is darkened and I say possibly gone. Because the moon no longer gives its light. See, in Revelation 6, you could still see the moon. It was red. By the way, how do we even see the moon? Because of the reflection of the sun. In Revelation 6, the sun becomes black as sackcloth, but you can still see the moon. It's red, which means there's a sunlight coming from the sun. In Matthew 24, the sun becomes dark and the moon doesn't give its light anymore. And the reason I say the possibility is that the sun disappears at this time is a prophecy that we'll get to later on. It's in Zechariah that talks about on that day of Jesus' return that there's not going to be light like it was before. It's going to be a day like no other. There's going to be no cold, no heat. It's going to be an interesting day. And all of what we know is the sun and the moon and everything is going to be totally different. We see in Matthew 24, the moon gives no light. It's not red. The, star, the stars fall and the powers of heaven are shaken. But according to verse 29, when does this happen? After the tribulation of those days. At the end of the... This is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24. is not the sixth seal. It's actually at the end of the tribulation. At the very end of it. So you, you, you may not be there with me yet, but I, I'm going to help you see that there are two different events. They're not the same. And the reason we can know this is prophecy in the Old Testament is talking about these events has been for a long, long time. So what we're going to do is I'm going to show you three places. There's more. I'm going to show you three places in the Old Testament that talk about these two events. But you have to tell me whether or not it's referring to Revelation 6 or Matthew 24. All right. And I'm going to ask for show of hands. How many going this way? How many going the other way? So get ready for your pop quiz. Go with me to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Look at verses 30 and 32. God says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Is this Revelation 6 or Matthew 24? How many say Revelation 6? How many say Matthew 24? Good. I figured you all would get that one right. But how do you know that this isn't Matthew 24, but this is Revelation 6? How do you know? The moon is blood. And this happens what? 
before the return of Jesus. Matthew 24 is at the return of Jesus. All right? That was the easy one. Isaiah 13. Look at verses 6 through 13. Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them, and they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another, and their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind more than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. How many think Revelation 6? How many think Matthew 24? You're two for two. But how do you know this is Matthew 24? The moon does not give its light. The sun is dark and the moon does not give its light, which is what Matthew 24. By the way, have you seen it? The Old Testament's shown us that there's going to be two different events. Now I'm going to give you the real hard one. Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 6. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom and upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidney of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. How many think this is Revelation 6? How many think it's Matthew 24? It's Matthew 24. The reason why you think it's Revelation 6 is because it sure is almost word for word Revelation 6, isn't it? It talks about the figs falling. It talks about the sky receding like a scroll, well, not like a scroll. But folks, there's two things in here that help us to understand that this is actually Matthew 24. One of them you might be able to know. The other one I only know because I know what's coming up. And there's a clue in here that we haven't gotten to yet. And it's actually something that I didn't even know until a few years ago. And I'm going to clarify that for you in just a second what that is. The first thing is this. This one is the toughest since the words parallel Revelation 6 so closely. But look closely. It says all the host of heaven disappears. Right? If all the host of heaven disappears, that includes the sun and the moon. So it has to be Matthew 24. But there's a second clue. And I'm going to take a second to deal with that. 
It says that the Lord has a great sacrifice where, according to the end of verse 6? In Basra. I'm going to just do this briefly because we're going to go into it in a lot more detail later on. But for years, I used to think that when Jesus returned, he came back to the Mount of Olives. You see, the Bible says that when he ascended from the Mount of Olives, the angels said, hey, what are you doing standing and looking at the skies? This same Jesus will come back in the same manner in which he ascended, right? And there's a prophecy in Zechariah that says that Jesus is going to stand on the Mount of Olives and it's going to split in two and a river is going to flow from it and it's going to start flowing out and it's just going to, the millennial kingdom is going to begin. And so for years, I thought that when Jesus came back, he came back to the Mount of Olives because that's where he ascended from. And the angel said he's going to come back in the same way. And the Bible says he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. For years, I thought Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But as I did more and more study, I came to realize that when Jesus returns, he doesn't return to the Mount of Olives directly. He returns to Basra. You see, we'll get into it in more detail later on. But remember, at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to go after Israel. Two-thirds of them are going to be killed. One-third is going to escape out into the desert, and they're going to be protected. And the Bible tells us over three times, if not four, where it is. It's in Basra. That's where the Jews are protected. That's in the area of Petra. Some prophecy people think that that's where it's going to be is Petra. And God protects them there. And when Jesus comes back, he comes back to where the Jews are. They're going to look on him whom they've pierced. And just read with me real quick Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra, who is splendid, who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and have from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and I trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood was spattered on my garments. And stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is the second coming. You're going to see a parallel when Jesus comes back. And remember, everybody with him is all dressed in white, but he's covered in blood when he returns. He's going to return to Basra, where the Jews are hiding. He's going to defeat his enemies all the way through the valley of Jezreel at the Battle of Armageddon. And he's going to ascend the Mount of Olives. And when he ascends the Mount of Olives, it's going to split and the Millennial Kingdom is going to begin. There's much more. I'll show you this when we get to this part of the study. I just share that with you just to simply say one of the reasons we can tell that what he's talking about in Isaiah 34 is not Revelation 6 is because all the host of heaven disappear. Everything goes, which is Matthew 24 and his Sword is sated with blood, and he has a sacrifice in Basra. This is the second coming of Jesus. I can't wait to show you this passage in Micah that talks about him leading his lambs out from Basra as they follow him, and he comes when he comes back. It's going to be really cool, folks. I, I can't tell you how much I can't wait. I have the hardest time each week going, "Oh, we can't get there yet." Oh, I can't wait to tell you this, but we're not ready for that. We got to get. We'll wait till we get there. But everything in the Book of Revelation we can find pretty much has already been written. But some of you might still have a problem with the fact that 
Why does he make the sun go black twice? Why does he have an earthquake? Why are the stars falling and then they fall again and disappear? Why, why is he doing it twice? Well, you may not have known it, but he's done it more than twice. Go with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the, all the land until the ninth hour. Does anybody know what's going on here? What am I, where am I reading from? The crucifixion. And the sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is three in the afternoon. And at the time that Jesus was on the cross, God made the sun go dark. This isn't a cloudiness. It wasn't overcast. You want proof? Go to Luke's version of it. Look at Luke 23, verses 44 and 45. This is why reading all the gospel accounts when you study things will help you get a real clear picture of what's going on. Luke 23, verses 44 and 45. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light, what? Failed. Stop shining, some of your translations say. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Oh, by the way, when Jesus died, wasn't there an earthquake? When he rose from the dead, wasn't there an earthquake? So it's not the first time that God's made the sun go dark and an earthquake happened at the same time. He's done this before. He's trying to get the world's attention. Has been for years. God's been trying to get our attention through creation. His divine nature, his eternal qualities have been seen through what has been made so that men are without excuse. He's been using people like you and I that he's opened our eyes and we've come to the faith and we've shared it. He's been trying to get the world's attention and he's tried and tried and tried. And at this point, he's orchestrating the events of the seven-year tribulation period to get the world's attention. And when he opens the sixth seal, he starts doing things in the heavens, on the earth, a massive earthquake over the whole globe and the sky going dark and the moon being blood red and the stars starting to fall from the sky to the point that the world at that time says, you know what? I think God's doing something. But look again back at Revelation chapter 6. What was the reaction of the whole earth to the fact that God was doing something? They hide. Does that remind you of anybody? Adam and Eve. They heard him and they were afraid and they hid. Let me just take a second to talk to you about the fact that the Bible teaches about fear in a lot of detail. The Bible actually says in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is good. The Bible says we're supposed to fear the Lord. Jesus himself even said in Luke chapter 12, he said, don't be afraid of man who after killing the body can't do any more to you. I'll tell you who you should fear. Fear the one who has the power to throw your body and soul into hell. By the way, who's that? It's God. Don't think it's Satan. Satan doesn't have the power to throw you into hell. Satan's getting thrown into hell himself. People have over the years had all these cartoons about all the demons and Satan yucking it up in heaven. If you read your Bibles, folks, 
You'll know that when Jesus walked on the earth and that man had a legion of demons within him and they knew who he was, they said, we know who you are, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Have you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? Please, don't send us there now. Send us into the pigs. They weren't like, can we go to this abyss now? They were afraid of it. Satan doesn't have the authority to throw you into hell. Who has the keys to hell and heaven? Jesus does. Jesus says, let me tell you who you should be afraid of. You should be afraid of the one who has the authority to throw your body and soul into hell. You need to fear God. But now let me just tell you, there's different reactions to fear. One we just saw, and we referenced it in, in Genesis chapter 3, where they were afraid and they hid. Those of you that ever took any psychology classes, you know there's such a thing as the fight or flight mentality, right? By the way, can you hide from God? Is there anywhere you can go and hide from God? Psalm 139 says there's nowhere you can go. If I go here, you're there. If I go there, you're there. Where can I go from your presence? I can't. So hiding from God when you're afraid of God is not a good reaction. Doesn't do you any good. Oh, there's a fight reaction. We see that, by the way, in the nations that the nation of Israel is going into the land. And God put a fear of them, in, a fear of the Lord in the nations that they were going to take care of. But what did they do? They fought against Israel. By the way, if you fight God, will you win? So is that a good reaction? The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the talents that there was a third servant who, I saw you, God, as a hard man, uh, reaping where you hadn't sowed and gathering where you haven't scattered seed, and I was afraid. So I didn't do anything. You ever seen a deer in the headlights? Is that a good reaction to fear? Doesn't work for the deer. You can hide from God, it ain't going to do you any good. You can fight against God, good luck. You can stand there scared to death and do nothing. It won't be the right reaction. But the Bible says that what we're supposed to do is when we come to this holy fear and realize he's God and we're not, he's holy and we're not, he has the right to destroy us because of our sin, we are to run to him and fall on him and beg for his mercy. Let me just show you. Go to Matthew chapter uh, 21. Jesus himself says this. Matthew chapter 21. Look at verses 42 and for, through 44. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is describing himself as this cornerstone. The prophecy had said that the stone the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. And the cornerstone, if you know anything about architecture and, and carpentry at that day, it was a perfectly square stone that had been built so that it would be put in the corner of the building. And then you could line up all the rest of your wall on that side and all the rest of your wall on this one. And it would be perfectly square. And it was the most important stone in the building of the structure. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he says, whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but whoever it falls on will be crushed. By the way, I don't know if you know it or not, but we're already broken. 
right? There's no one righteous, not even one. My righteousness is as filthy rags, the Bible says. The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt. By the way, that's all of us. That's why he goes on and says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, blessed are those who realize I'm broken apart from you, God. I can't be right. I can't do anything to make it right. I fall on you. I'm a mess. Help me. What does he do when we fall on him? What did Peter do when he came to realize that this guy, Jesus, was more than just a man? When he said to Peter, come on, let's go throw out the nets for it. On the deep water, let's get a catch. And Peter says, hey, we fished all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll humor you. And, uh, and when all those fish jumped in the net, what did Peter do? He fell on his knees before Jesus and said, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Jesus says, I'm actually going to turn you into something awesome. Their reaction is to hide from God. Hey, we're not going to be here when this happens. But we have some days left to tell them, don't hide. When you start to realize he's holy and you're not, don't hide. It doesn't do you any good. Don't fight against him. <laughs> what did Jesus say to Paul? <laughs> he said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, you could fight me, but I'm going to win. <laughs> Don't do, do nothing. Run to him. Run to him. Beg for his mercy. But if he falls on you, it's over. It's over. Let me, one last thing along that line. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, that perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears in this manner has not been made perfect or complete in love. That's the cool part. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Realizing that he's holy and he has the authority to throw my body and soul into hell is smart. But if I run to him and say, Lord, would you give me salvation? Would you give me your grace? The Bible says that he will erase my sin. Put his spirit within me. Mark me as his child. And I don't have to fear his punishment ever again. That's kind of cool. So folks, I'm going to give you a little homework. Now I apologize ahead of time because I don't know exactly where we're going next week and that makes your homework twice as hard. You have to read both Daniel 9 verses 20 through 27 and Revelation chapter 12 because next week when we get together We'll either begin in Revelation chapter 12 or Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. It'll become clear next week why the two. But I think we're at that point where we've got to stop and take a look at Daniel's prophecy about the 77s and really break it down. Because it will be very, very helpful for us from the rest of our study. When you see how literally Jesus fulfilled the first 69 weeks of the 77s, if you will, in his prophecy... It will make you understand how literal that last seven-year period is. We may most likely go there first, so be read, read, up, read up on that. But at the same time, we may just go to chapter 12, because where we are now, we need to see what's going to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation, because that's where we are right now in our study of Revelation. What starts to happen from here on out, I think, is going to happen from the midpoint on. And we're going to have to jump to chapter 12, though, so we can be introduced to this beast because you're going to see the beast acting in the verses 
chapters to come, we need to be introduced to who he is first. So Revelation 12 and Daniel 9. And if you've read up for those, you'll be ready for next week. All right. Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you next week.